The Koffler Gallery is proud to present the world premiere of a heart-wrenching and fascinating exhibition, The Synagogue at Babinyar, Turning the Nightmares of Evil into a Shared Dream of Good. Opening on the eve of Yom HaShoah, April 17th, and running until November, the multidisciplinary exhibition tells the bittersweet story of the Babinyar Synagogue, which stands on the grounds of the first large-scale massacre of the Holocaust in 1941. Experience the full historical, political, artistic, and spiritual context of this incredible monument for the first time. The exhibition is free of charge. To learn more, visit KofflerArts.org. That's what it sounded like across Israel as the country marked the solemn annual Memorial Day for soldiers who fell in battle defending the Jewish state. This Yom Hazikaron siren was from Monday night ceremony at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, where the President of Israel, Isaac Herzog, joined bereaved families to light memorial candles. Meanwhile, on big screens in the plaza, they displayed the names of the 24,213 troops who fell defending Israel in its wars. Israel also honors the more than 4,250 civilians who have been killed at the hands of terrorists. And so here at the CJN Daily, today we're focusing this episode of the regular monthly feature that we call Honorable Mention on several Jewish Canadians who served in the 1948 War of Independence and have recently passed away. Plus, we'll pay tribute to some builders of Israel, to a Jewish studies professor, and to the fastest nonagenarian track and field athlete in the world. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Tuesday, April the 24th, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, and we're sponsored by Metropia. Joining us now again for this eighth installment of Honourable Mention is, once again, the CJN's Ron Silag. Hey, Ron, welcome back. Thanks for having me again, Ellen. Thank you. Now, Ron, we want to begin this Honourable Mention episode talking about machalniks. I'm sure you know what that means, don't you? Are you asking me? <laughs> you want to say quiz? <laughs> sure. It means uh, volunteers from overseas. And um, uh, hundreds and hundreds of volunteers from all over the world poured into the fledgling state after uh, war was declared in May of 1948. Among them were 268, I believe, for precise number, Canadians. Most of them were Second World War veterans. Um, some of them had survived the Holocaust, who uh, came to Israel to fight in various capacities, and we'll get into that later. And as you said, some of them had vital Second World War experience that was very useful to the embattled Israeli military. And one of them was the late Dr. Bill Novick of Montreal. He died March 23rd after a brief illness. He was 99. An amazing story. Dr. Novick had grown up in Montreal. He was born in 1923. He went to Baron Bing High School, which was a very famous school where even though it was a public school, most of the students were Jewish in the old neighborhood, which Mordecai Richler made famous. Now, Novick wanted to go to medical school, but he wasn't sure he was going to get accepted right away. So in 1941, after he graduated, he immediately listed in the Air Force. 
I knew Bill Novick. I was privileged to know him because I'd interviewed him a couple of times for the CJN and our listeners and viewers might have seen some of those articles. And I also wrote about him for my book, Double Threat, which tells the stories of the 17,000 Canadians of Jewish faith who fought Hitler in the Second World War. Now, I once asked Bill why he chose the Air Force, and he told me that he wanted to have some control over his fate, if you can believe that, because he felt that being in the Air Force would be easier than sleeping in the muddy foxholes and getting shot at on the ground. And he always said that the real heroes were the foot soldiers, not him. Bill Novick was a highly decorated bomber pilot from the Second World War. Bravo, Bill! That was some of the audio I recorded of Bill in June of 2019 in Juneau Beach, Normandy, France. He was receiving a standing ovation as he strode energetically along the path. He was there for the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings, one of the Canadian veterans who was at the ceremony, and we were all with him on a tour. Now, on D-Day, Dr. Novick was at the controls of a massive Royal Canadian Air Force Halifax bomber, and he was the pilot, and he and his crew successfully destroyed some key bridges that day to prevent German panzer tanks from coming across and counterattacking while tens of thousands of Canadian and British and American troops stormed the beaches of Normandy and thus began to turn the tide of the Second World War. Dr. Novick was just 19 or 20 years old at the time, if you can believe it. And yet, during the war, he successfully completed more than 30 bombing raids, which was really rare because Bomber Command lost 50% of its crews. And for his gallantry and his steady head, he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. After the war ended, Bill came home to Montreal in 1945. But having seen what had happened to the Jews of Europe in the Holocaust, he didn't hesitate to put his Air Force skills to good use once again. And in 1948, just as the new Jewish state found itself in the War of Independence, Bill went. Two years ago, we interviewed him for the Canadian Jewish News about his experiences. And so I'll let you hear in his words how he got to Israel and what he did. Well, I was in the university and uh, um, studying pre-medical studies at that time. And, uh, of course, the state was declared. They knew there was going to be a war on uh, they were desperately looking for uh, Jewish guys uh, and girls who had had war experience in the Second World War to uh, come and join the fight for Israel because uh, there was no doubt about it that there was going to be an invasion by the surrounding Arab countries. I uh, agreed to go. I was sent to New York uh, where I, I was given instructions to, first of all, go to Mexico City that there would be planes available to fly uh, to Czechoslovakia to start the airlift. Two days in Mexico City, I was told, no, there aren't any, you're going to go to Cuba. I was sent to Cuba. I was there for two days. I was told, no, there are no planes. You're going to go to Puerto Rico. Uh, off I went to San Juan, Puerto Rico. And sure enough, there were three planes, B-17s, uh, salvaged from a a junkyard. Uh, they'd been American bombers. Uh, I was a co-pilot of one of these planes to fly to Czechoslovakia. And uh, off I went to Israel with a dismantled Messerschmitt fighter in the, uh, loaded on the plane, along with other arms, flying first to Korska, uh, waiting a few hours so that we could then arrive in Israel at night, uh, because the Egyptian Air Force still had command of the skies at that time, 
and there was a blackout over Israel. Uh, fortunately, during the summer, weather was good. We were able to find our landmarks. The Messerschmitt was unloaded. I spent uh, two or three days in Israel. Another plane came in. I flew it back, and this went back and forth. And it was the first four or five Messerschmitts uh, that were flown into Israel uh, that uh, really attacked the Egyptian army only 20 miles from Tel Aviv, and I think turned the tide of battle. Now, according to his family, Dr. Novik was too modest about his war service. He kept his war medals in the basement, along with his pilot logbook, and he was very unassuming. He was a fitness buff, he played tennis, he hiked, he ran marathons well into his senior years, and he only retired from his love of practicing medicine as an ear, nose, and throat physician when he was 97. At his funeral... One of his sons, Dr. Howard Novick, gave the real story about Bill's Machal service in 1948. He called it Bill's year of living dangerously. On one of his secret flights to smuggle planes and weapons into Israel, Bill lost an engine and he landed the plane in Italy where he was immediately captured and jailed until the Haganah sent spies in with bribes to free him. At the end of his life, Howard said Bill's heart was always with the Jewish people. So they would land in the cloak of darkness and unload the planes. And once they unloaded them, he spent the next day painting the Star of David on the fuselage over the Nazi swastika. May that be his legacy. Then after having a sleep and sometimes a shower, he would get back in his airplane with his crew and Instead of flying straight to Czechoslovakia to reload, they turned south for 20, 30 miles and with their foot, feet kicked bombs out of the airplanes onto the advancing Egyptian army. But in closing, my father would have wanted me to say three words. And those three words, Dad, Am Yisrael Chai. That's what he wanted me to say. It is an amazing story, and he was amazing. Now, speaking about Machal veterans, Canada has very few left, maybe only one Machal veteran. Jerry Gross of Montreal died earlier this year, so I think David Matlow's father, Irving Matlow, may be the last one still alive. Why don't we talk about Jerry Gross? He was 18 when he was called up, but a flat feet prevented him from leaving Camp Borden, where he was trained. After the war, he enlisted, as we said, in, in, the Machal, in the Machal, and he went to Israel in May of 1948, serving in a very elite unit of the Haganah, the, the Gavati 52nd Brigade. And most notably, uh, Mr. Gross participated in the battles of Latrun, which were very fierce battles very soon after statehood in late May of 1948, and they were designed to liberate Jerusalem. They were very bloody battles, according to him, about half of the 300 or so frontline fighters in those battles were killed. He had, of course, wonderful stories to tell. He went on to a manufacturing, successful furniture manufacturing career in Montreal. Um, one of the things that he remembered very clearly was not in Israel, but in Canada, when a senior officer called him a Jew boy. And Jew boy, he wanted the Jew boy to go get him some coffee. So Mr. Gross dutifully went to get the coffee threw it in the officer's face, obviously. Mm. There was a court-martial, and he was, um, the charge was eventually withdrawn. 
We're not quite sure exactly why, but we think it was because uh, the officer had um, said something he shouldn't have said. He remembered that quite clearly. He also remembered being thrown in jail in Israel because he refused to fire on the Altalena. The Altalena was a very famous uh, arms ship that belonged to the uh, rival, I guess you could say, underground paramilitary group, the Irgun. There was fire between, uh, an exchange of fire between the Israel Defense Forces, the Haganah, and Irgun. Uh, as, as I said, he refused to fire on his fellow Jews, he said, and uh, he went to jail. The ship that was under the Irgun was run by Menachem Begin with all the That's weapons right. on it, and they were supposed to share weapons with Ben-Gurion's side. Right. It's still a sore point in Israel. If you walk along the promenade on the, on the beach between Haifa, uh, or rather between Jaffa and Tel Aviv, there's a large plaque which explains it all. Um, as I said, anyway, Gross went to jail. Uh, he joked that he spent about a week in, in detention and he was never actually restrained. His refusal to fire on this ship was treated um, uh, on, on one level seriously, but when he actually got to jail, he was never restrained and he spent several nights drinking with his guards. As I said, he came back to Montreal, started a successful furniture business and a very snappy dresser and an interesting man who drove Cadillacs and very outgoing. And, um, and his history is located uh, online. And so uh, we pay tribute to somebody we forgot about, unfortunately, but not now, not on uh, Yom Hazikaron Jerry Gross. Now, Ron, we have to take a quick break, but we'll be back after this important message with stories about the late Leo Goldhar, Rabbi Michael Brown, and Lightning Lou Billinkoff. UJA's Walk with Israel is happening this Victoria Day, Monday, May 22nd. Join thousands of community members for the world's largest Israel Solidarity Walk, followed by an epic Israeli-themed beach party to celebrate Israel's 75th birthday. Get all the details by visiting walkwithisrael.com. This is our moment to unite as one strong and proud Jewish community, religious and secular, left and right, Jews and allies, everyone belongs at the Walk with Israel. Register before May 19th, and if you use the promo code CJN, you can save 10% on all Walk Bundle packages. To register, visit walkwithisrael.com. So Ron, turning to Leo Goldhar, other honorable mention who have passed away, who have led a fascinating life and contributed to the Jewish community. Tell us a bit about Goldhar. He was one of those Jewish real estate developers whose families had immigrated from Eastern Europe, and he wound up building Canada and Jewish Canada and Israel too, right? Well, Leo Goldhar, every time I read about him, he reminds me of those Our Gang movies. Do you remember those tough little kids in Our Gang? He was, he was like that. He was a tough kid born uh, above his parents' delicatessen and cigar store at St. Clair and Dufferin. He was described as a tough kid with a short fuse. He never graduated high school, got into trouble. Um, by the time he died at age 91, he was really an icon in, in, in the philanthropic community. Spent the last 30 years of his life really with large portfolios of community building, health promoting causes, things like that. His crowning achievement was the Lubavik Center in uh, Lawn. Um, he sort of stick handled most of the heavy lifting land acquisition, zoning, fundraising challenges, the day-to-day -day stuff that, that bamboozles a lot of people. He did tons of stuff that also nobody will ever know about. Uh, University Health Network, he was a longtime board member there. Um, so uh, he was smart. Uh, he said he had a short attention span but and, and a healthy dislike of rules. Uh, got into trouble, as I said, his, lot, his parents were busy trying to earn a living. 
Um, but, you know, he, one of those people who just clawed his way uh, up the ladder, did extremely well. Uh, his, um, his wife, uh, Sala, uh, had her own stories surviving the Holocaust as a small child. She had been sheltered by two generations of a Polish family and went between different homes and, um, and orphanages. And so he dabbled also in a lot of business ventures, some successful, some not so much, shower doors, tiles, carpets, things like that, but obviously did very well at many things. And uh, despite, despite the sort of hard scrabble upbringing, um, guy fell in love with philanthropy, gave away millions. And so, yeah, Leo Goldharb received both the Order of Ontario and the Order of Canada. And how old was uh, Leo? Leo was 91. And he died in March 11th. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Ron, turning to historians, I know lots of our listeners like stories about Jewish history. Please tell us about the late Michael Brown, rabbi and professor Michael Brown, an expert on another Machal fighter, by the way, from Toronto, Ben Dunkelman, who was a decorated World War II veteran. His family ran tip-top tailors. And when war broke out in Israel, he was there as a commander of a brigade of English-speaking volunteers and not only broke the blockade of Jerusalem, but he captured and liberated much of the central Galilee. So back to Professor Dr. Rabbi Brown. Yes, Michael Brown did do that. He was hard to say. um, Michael Brown had incredible contributions to really all aspects of Canadian Jewish studies in Canada. He was an academic he taught at York for many, many years. He died in Montreal on March 17th, just a few days on uh, shy of his 85th, what would have been his 85th birthday. Um, tons of awards and recognition. Um, Jewish studies really in this light country bear his very strong imprint. Uh, he was recruited to build a, a program in Jewish studies and in Jewish teacher education at York in the mid-1960s. That was an era when York was first coming into its own, and Jewish studies in Canada were coming into their own. So this is a very early time. He was a real pioneer. He was an American who um, uh, came north, got his doctorate at um, SUNY in Buffalo, and then was also an ordained rabbi. People, I myself didn't know this until I read it in his obituary. Um, well, you mentioned he was an ordained rabbi, but also a very prolific scholar, writing many books and articles. Can you list some of them that our folks should look up? Yeah, he had, he had a very eclectic uh, tastes and interest. He wrote about, uh, co-wrote a book called Jew, Jew or Juif? Jews, French Canadians and Anglo Canadians between the period of 1759 and 1914. Uh, he wrote a book about teaching teachers, how to teach Jewish teachers of Jewish studies. He wrote that with Alex Pomson and Sidney Eisen, also very well-known names in Canadian academia. Uh, wrote a book called, co-wrote a book called Creating the Jewish Future, uh, Approaches to Anti-Semitism, uh, Jews and Their Role in Constitutions and Constitutionalism in Canada, uh, written, co-written with uh, Ira Robinson at Concordia. So um, he also wrote something called uh, a Bibliography of Jewish Canadiana, 1965 to 2000. So a great deal, very prolific, uh, in addition to helping establish the Israel and Golda Kashitsky Center for Jewish Studies at York. He served for many years as its director and uh, he helped create and nurture a, a really unique program in Jewish teacher education. And a very nice guy to boot. I've interviewed him many times and he was always pleasant to deal with. Um, I can't say that about all academics who for some reason uh, either don't like reporters or think you're wasting their time. 
He was always amenable and always pleasant. And he was on the board of the CJN, too. I believe he was at one point, sure. Now we're going to move to a tribute to a Winnipegger who you might have heard about on our website or other news channels, Lightning Lou Billenkoff. He's actually a distant, distant relative of mine through marriage. But we've all followed his career because he was an inspiration in athletics. He set all kinds of records. Here's a clip of Lou speaking in a video he made for the Arthritis Society in Manitoba a couple of years ago to encourage people to get moving. Hi, I'm Lou Billenkoff. I'm 97 years old. And last year I set the world record for a 50 meter dash. I'm supporting Arthritis Society in their Move Your Way campaign. I'm going to attempt to run 50 meters in 20 seconds. So tell us about Lightning Lou. Yes, Lightning Lou, what a story. Uh, he died March 14th at the age of 99. After a 10-year sprinting career that saw him become the fastest Canadian man in the 90 to 94 and the 95 to 99 age group. I never knew there was such a thing. Well, there's not many in there. <laughs> <There's> <laughs> well, who, who's he going to compete against? Well, apparently there's plenty of competition and he was pretty quick for his age. This is a man who suffered a heart attack at the age of 89. Um, he worked for 40 years as an engineer in, Man in Manitoba Hydro. And at the age of 89, everyone said, okay, it's not a bad time to suffer a heart attack. He's on his way out. He lived a long life. But what he did, he, was, he began a cardiac program as part of his healing. And um, as part of that rehab, he remembered uh, how much joy it had given him as a kid to run. He had loved to run. And part of it, his rehab was walking on a track. One day he broke into a run and kept running and running. And he ran the 100 meters one day and his son clocked him and said that he was running at a championship speed for his age. And believe it or not, at the age of whatever it was in his early 90s, became a competitive runner. And he went on to become the fastest 95-year-old in Canada in the 100-meter sprint. At the age of 96, he ran the 50 meters in 15.67 seconds. Doesn't sound like uh, a great time, but uh, let's all wait till we're 96 and try it. And he beat the 2000, he beat a world record time by more than a second, which is amazing. Um, then he was hooked and he ran all the time. His, he became a media darling in Winnipeg. Everyone loved him. His, he was like catnip to the media. And he was a terrific guy and always, um, you know, always good with a quip and a quote. And he had a very interesting um, philosophy of life. Why wouldn't you do it? He said, you should always try something if you don't think you can do it, because I didn't know I could do it. So there you go. Ron Lubilinkov would have celebrated his 100th birthday on June the 5th of this year. And as we're talking Yoma Zikaron, I wanted to remember the names of the 11 Canadians who were killed in the 1948 War of Independence in Israel. For years, the CJN would have published their names in its newspaper, we got a request from the nephew of one of the fallen, Wilf Mandel, who wrote to us and asked us to continue the tradition. And so I'm, great, I'm glad to do that today. So here you go. First, George Burling. His nickname was Buzz. He was from Verdun. He was Christian. He was Canada's top World War II fighter ace. And then he joined the 48 war effort after he was recruited by Sidney Shulamson, the same fellow who recruited Dr. Novick. 
He was killed near Rome on May 20th of 1948 when the airplane that he was supposed to fly to Israel to help boost the Air Force fleet crashed. Now, some people say it was sabotage. They suspect somebody put sugar in the gasoline tank. Berling was later buried in Haifa's military cemetery with full honors. Harvey Cohen and Ed Lugetsch were first cousins from Toronto. They served in the Palmach Yiftach Brigade. They died near the Lebanese border on the very first day of the war, May 15th, 1948. Nobody was able to find their remains for 50 years until 2009 when they received a proper burial. We'll also remember Ruben Schiff of Toronto, who was killed July 11th, 1948. Sidney Rubinoff of Toronto served with the Palmach. He was wounded at Latrun in July of 48, and died on the way to hospital. Sidney Leisure, also of Toronto, killed in September in the Battle for the Galilee. Leonard Fitchett of Vancouver was an ex-RCAF pilot. He was in the 103 Squadron. He was shot down by anti-aircraft fire while attacking an Egyptian police fortress. Pilot Wilfred Cantor from Toronto, his navigator Willie Fisher of Winnipeg, and Fred Stevenson, the co-pilot of Vancouver, were all RCAF veterans. They served in also the 103 Squadron, and they uh, they were doing a supply run to the south in October of 48, and their plane exploded in the air. An engine had caught fire. Ralph Moster of Vancouver was the pilot. He was killed with others in his crew when they crashed into the Sea of Galilee during a training flight. And Ron, that's our show for this episode of the CJN Daily's Honorable Mention, sponsored by Metropia, Integrity, Community, Quality, and Customer Care. So thanks, Ron, for your insights and your anecdotes, and we'll do it again. Thank you, Ellen. Thanks for having me. I, I, I wish we didn't have to do this. I wish one day maybe we'd, you know, nobody would die. But uh, here we are, and uh, always a pleasure to recount these wonderful lives. You can read more about all our Honorable Mentions on our website. We put the links in our show notes for you. Thanks for listening to the CJN Daily.